You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. <laughs> Today, we are discussing episode seven of season five in Camelot. And I'm going to begin by posing the question, whose Camelot are we in? New Jersey or JFK's or our own? As watchers of the show, hangers on to this world that will squash us like a bug if we avail ourselves to it. Regardless, Sopranos is, after all, a fiction. And in this episode, we are exposed to a lot of fictions or myths to apply the deft use of the word by autopsy to describe this episode. Musically, Justin, actually, I don't want to say Justin yet because I'm going to introduce you in a second. Musically, it's an opportunity to invoke Beach House's song of the same name, which could very well have been a needle drop on this episode. Today, I'm joined via Zoom by my friend and long-lost pal of the pod, Justin. Justin, it's great to see the face of an old friend right now. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, it's good to be back in the words of the immortal Vito Svatafor. I fucking miss this shit. How are things going in your neck of the woods right now? How's the quarantine? Relatively well. Uh, our our go- our governor did a, a really good job, Andy Bashir. Um, he did a really good job of kind of hitting this thing head on from the get-go. Um, obviously, I think everywhere's hit pretty hard, but all things considered... I'm doing well, um, so I, I can't complain. I mean, I'm I'm actually still going into work um, every day. It's it's just me. I'm social distancing. There's nobody there. Sure. Um, it's like my way of keeping my sanity, to be honest. Oh, totally. No, this uh, and um, I think it's fair to say that this is part of that sanity too. I'm excited to be able to do this with you. It's fun. Yes. Uh, it's a nice distraction, nice escapism from all the other shit that's going on. Let's jump into the episode and do this, okay? Yes. All right, HBO synopsis. His father's longtime Gumar sheds light on some of Tony's lingering emotional and financial mysteries. Meanwhile, Junior sees the upside of attending the funerals of fringe relations, while Christopher sees the downside of enabling an AA friend's new addiction. This episode was written by the great Terrence Winter and directed by Steve Buscemi, originally aired on April 18th, 2004. It's my mom's birthday. We open on Livia's house, looking somewhat more decrepit than normal, almost dystopian. Justin, I've been watching a lot of dystopian movies lately. Maybe that's why I thought of that word. I just watched I Am Legend again. Do you remember that one with Will Smith? I do, I do. Wow, that's a... That's very um, timely. (laughs) Super timely, right? It's about a virus overtaking the human race. Uh, Positive note, uh, as as our friend John would say, he he does die at the end, but uh, it does end somewhat well. So that's positive, and I hope that we uh, as a civilization are able to end somewhat well too. Well, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Hopefully hopefully not, yeah. Hopefully not, but who knows, right? Who knows what's going on here? One thing I do want to say that's really interesting, it's uh, I know I didn't really put this together until right now, but Terrence Winters, Steve Buscemi, what a pair. I mean, Boardwalk Empire, that's 
that's really interesting. So I really like what what they've uh, gone on to do. Well, together. this is the precursor for that, right? I think yes, they both exactly. have said that they work together on um, Pine Barrens, and then they work together on this episode, and it sort of set the blueprint for that amazing working relationship that they had together. So uh, yeah. good pointing that out. Um, little details, note the Mother Mary figure on the front gate. That was a trivia question giveaway that I just did earlier this afternoon. Uh, then note the tattered American flag. There's something symbolic happening there to me. Again, we're in a post 9-11 era on the show mm-hmm. here. The means to the pursuit of the American dream are very different from house to house on that block. That's one thing that I saw. But also there's some nice patriotic symmetry right out of the gate since the title in Camelot relates to the Kennedy family and the Kennedy presidency, all of which factor into this episode to a degree. Note, Tony's got a new Escalade. You haven't been doing these episodes with me, but you are. You do very well remember the accident with Adriana. Um, we see a brand new Escalade. So either the insurance came through or <laughs> someone got boosted or maybe he went to the dealership and actually paid cash for one. Who knows? We'll never know, right? Yeah, he's got a nicer insurance agent than Artie Bugo. For sure. say that at least. Safe to say all is apparently well on the home front. Speaking of idyllic home life, have you learned to love any aspect of being home all the time? Is there any new rituals or new optimizations that you've come up with in the past weeks, months? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. This is kind of like my peak. This is what I was built for. I was built for the home life. Um, so things aren't too bad. I'm definitely missing NBA basketball right now, especially with how the Lakers are doing. So I'm sure we'll get into that multiple times, but uh, that's, that's really, you know, of all the things that they can take away from us right now, what we really need the most is the NBA right now. So really bummed about that, but I am really good at 2k now. I've had a lot of time to practice. So anybody that wants to challenge me, we can, we can get it. Real talk. Is there going to be a season? Is it coming back? I can't imagine how there is. I, as sad as, as sad as that is and how much it sucks that we miss out on a potential Lakers championship. Um, I just, I don't see how, I don't see how it can happen. I mean, that's what, that means they got to start the playoffs in, in May or June. I just don't see that happening. Well, I read that uh, Silver gave a Labor Day deadline, like a drop dead deadline, which I think is a really oh, wow. boss move on his part. If things aren't moving or mobilized by then, they pro- it sounds like they will cancel the season. Again, we are comfortable Laker fans and we'll live and we're our, our biggest complaint is not being able to see LeBron yeah, see this exactly. season through. Um, but it is a big deal. Like this is like the, Nick Wright was talking about LeBron. He's got his own show on Fox. He was saying that this could potentially be the last time we ever see, we'll never see LeBron in the playoffs again because we didn't see him last year. And uh, this is a lost season if he doesn't play. And then, like, what are the chances or what are the odds of him playing again? The point he was trying to make was, like, let's appreciate LeBron James for a minute because we might never see him in the playoffs again. That's wild to think about. I mean, I disagree with that. Well, we don't have. We'll say this for your for your NBA podcast that um, this is my audition <laughs> for. So I'll say it for that. <laughs> well, you're gonna come on. Do, are you talking about run it back? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're. Oh, you're definitely coming on. You're gonna do oh some God. run it back. You're gonna do some Lakers shows with me. Okay. I'm gonna continue because a lot of people are wondering, like, what is this a fucking NBA podcast now? Yeah. All right. Inside, Tony and Jan 
make up. Tony has her and the family over, um, which always makes me just miss those Carmela-led dinners all the more. They were so much more organized. The food was better. Everything yeah. was more cohesive. But, you know, they're on the fritz, right? Uh, the kids are watching Beethoven on the floor. I have not introduced my kids to Beethoven, and I'm not really sad to say that. It was a horrible movie. But it's yeah. a movie that came out in 1992. Richard Portnow, however, who plays Dr. Mel- or Doctor, who plays Attorney Melvoin, Junior's lawyer, was in the film. Nice bit of symmetry there. Uh, Connective tissue. Now the kids want a dog. A lot of dogs this episode, Justin. Nice little Mm -hmm. MacGuffin to lead us through the episode. Tony reminisces about his, Tippy. Always wondered if that was a nod to Tippy Hedren, the actor who was famous for her collaborations with Alfred Hitchcock. Tony says Tippy got worms, had to move to the country. The things our mothers tell us R.E. Long Lost Pets. Um, He and Jan have conflicting stories about Tippy. I've been down this road before personally with my own mother. Justin, did your mom ever lie to you about a beloved pet? I don't think my parents ever necessarily lied to me. Um, I've never I've never really had a pet. Uh, When I was when I was a kid, I had a pet parakeet that got away. So that could have been that could have been a, a lie. Um, and when we, one time we came back home from San Francisco and we found a turtle in the bottom of our pool and I was really big into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I was super excited, named him Frisky after San Francisco. And then apparently the turtle ran away, which I didn't put two and two together. So there's, there's, uh, there's something to look into there. My mom sent me away and she listens to the podcast, so I got to be careful, but she <laughs> sent me away to like some like sleepover thing or like to go stay with some cousin. And when I came back, um, my Cocker Spaniel, his name was Silk was gone. And she told me a similar story about some farm and some thing. And so every time I see this, I always think of that. And, and, uh, and Bobby tells us in the episode, like that place, there must be dogs up to the rafters, right? One of my dogs is in those rafters and I never let my mom live it down. So she, when she hears this, she's probably going to send me a text. So the phone rings and it's cousin Josephine. Justin, you're Persian, yeah. so I know you got a lot of cousins, okay? It's fair to say that cousins rarely call to shoot the shit. Culturally universal gem here, when a cousin calls, it's typically bad news. Fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I did just have a 40-person Persian-Jewish Zoom Passover last night. Of course. So. I just, uh, it's funny you say, say cousins right now after that, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say that you're right. I mean, right now we're in different times just because of the quarantine. I think people are trying to connect a little bit more, yeah. but generally you're a hundred percent right. If you're getting a text from a cousin out of the blue, it's not good. It's not good. If you talk to them regularly, that's one thing, but yeah. you know, everybody's got a cousin Josephine that they talk to like once every 13 years. <laughs> that's what I mean. By the way, happy Pesach. Did I say that right? Thank you. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Fran Feldstein would let you slide. Put it that way. <laughs> uh, Justin, what's the last bit of bad news that you received by phone? By phone? Not to get depressing, but my, my grandma passed uh, late last year, and uh, I got that call from my dad. So I'd say that's the last bit of phone. But uh, as far as text, it was uh, a buddy telling me about Kobe. Oh. Um, and that was, that was, that was a rough one. That was, a, that was a rough one. Where were you when you found out? What were you doing? 
I was watching Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back reboot on Amazon Prime. Um, and a, a buddy just texted me and I just, I was with like two friends and I just didn't say anything. I just was in kind of shock. And then I was just like looking at my phone, waiting for, for more updates, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. And finally, like it was, it was confirmed. And I was with, I was with two friends and I, I just, I, I shared the news and just shocking, shocking disbelief. Would you rather receive bad news over the phone or over text? I think text, definitely text, because then you have a, a chance to brace yourself. When you're getting something over the phone, you're with somebody, you're present with them, so you don't really know how to act. At least over text, you can kind of just measure yourself, at least internalize whatever's going on. So I definitely go text. Well, unlike Junior, Justin, let's continue on with this maudlin shit, okay? Cut to a funeral. Nice choice to have Tony explain what's going on by voiceover, I thought. I think that's called an L-cut. And anytime audio is employed in the service of the story, I shimmy like Steph Curry. There we go. There's one. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> there should be a little digital counter. If I had the video yeah. savvy, I'd have a little digital counter going a ding. on the bottom. A ding. Okay, I'll try to get the sound effect <laughs> for it. Uncle Zio, Justin, he's back. I had forgotten when we talked about him in a past episode, but he is addressed again in the show. Here he mm -hmm. is. In real life, he's Steve Buscemi's Uncle Fred. That's Steve Buscemi's real-life Uncle no Fred. Yeah. Anyway, so he found out his wife was dead on the couch after Meet the Press, which is a Sunday AM show. And mm -hmm. this is symbolic, the correlation of death and politics. Lately, I don't know about you, sometimes Livia makes a whole lot of sense because I find my internal monologue saying, I wish the Lord would take me now. <laughs> I mean, I go to, it's all a big nothing. <laughs> Justin, are you a meet the press guy? Were you a meet the press guy ever in your at certain point in your life? I'm definitely more of a, a real time with Bill Maher guy, but I, I appreciate meet the press. I definitely appreciate meet the press. Um, I don't really get, get a chance to watch it too much. I'm more of a, you know, cord cutter. So like, you know, uh, real time with Bill Maher, that's on HBO Go. It's ready for me every Saturday morning. I get to watch it. But. I hate that. I hate that they don't give it to us Friday night. That's such bullshit. Yeah, what's, what's that about? He's the only thing keeping me sane in all of this, just to let you know. Did you watch his home show? I did. It was passable. It was better than, than I think, the other late night host. Like, John Oliver wasn't a big fan mm. of, of his. Uh, real time. He, he did a serviceable job, I think. Real time brought it. I think Stephen Colbert has been doing an exceptional job. I normally don't watch him, but mm. his, his stay-at-home shows have been, like, they've been different. They've been, like might even be something they want to consider doing like as a bit going forward because it really like you really feel connected to him in a different way yeah this whole thing just shows how much we can get by with technology and without totally man like all the bells and whistles well i'm gonna spare you the meet the press host bracket mm -hmm. that i have but there were three hosts i was a huge meet the press guy i haven't been as of late but uh there was tim russert david gregory and chuck todd i was a russert guy all the way russert i like david gregory i'm not a big uh, chuck todd guy chuck todd guy yes yeah, so that's I, probably why i'm not watching it so much Russert was my guy. He was the host during the entire run of The Sopranos. He's the GOAT as far as Meet the Press hosts. Um, note, Uncle Zio's got one lens tinted. Um, I saw that 
at Warby Parker. There was a patient, I don't know if they're called patients when you customer, and I thought of Uncle Zio, and so my insert here is Warby Parker over here. And Father Intentola, of course, is doing his thing. But Justin, this is the first time really that he's been around Tony in a while. Last time Tony ever talked about Father Intentola was not fondly, right? I thought it would have been a nice, this would have made for a ripe opportunity for Tony to dig into him a little bit with Carmela. But they're separated. They're not standing next to each other. It's a funeral. You know what? One thing about Intentola this episode is he's getting paid. This is where he really makes his money. This, uh, all of these different funerals he's going to. All so. the funerals, exactly. He's getting his work in, for sure. He's earning that Rolex watch that uh, Mrs. April gave him. Oh, yeah. Instead of digging into Father Intentola, Tony wants to take a walk after the ceremony. Invites Junior to come with. Go visit with Johnny Boy. Great Junior soundbite for the ages. Five hours they let me out for these funerals. I gotta spend it being Mordlin. Tony's facial expression shift is a thing of beauty, and Steve Buscemi in the DVD commentary says it best. The incredible thing about Jim is that you forget that you're watching an actor. And this was a case in point of that. Justin, what did Junior mean by after party? Did he mean to say afterlife? <laughs> no, he meant after party. He's, he's living in an alternate reality right now, just being stuck at home. I mean, similar to the way we all are. But funerals are, are parties to him. This is what he goes out for. He gets dressed up. He, you know, he gets ready to go. He probably pregames a little bit. Uh, I think this is like what he looks forward to. So whatever's going on after the funeral, that's the after party. Did you just say that Junior's funeral tailgating? <laughs> no, he's pregaming. He's pregaming. Unbelievable. <laughs> the irony of how morbid that is but it's funny is classic soprano logo three nothing but net over and over again i got some logo lillards for you coming i actually jumped the gun bobby comes in to explain that all that's going on right now is junior's behavior uh it's got something to do with reuptake inhibitors that have improved his memory and mood so justin for the dr oz portion of the program over here Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are commonly prescribed antidepressants. They work by increasing serotonin levels in the brain. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but serotonin Mm. is like FedEx for your brain. More serotonin means more on-time deliveries to different parts of your brain that need it. SSRIs put more serotonin to work in a FedEx capacity rather than for other things. And the more that stuff is sloshing around, the less depressed you become. Is my analogy accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Common SSRIs are Lexapro, Prozac, and Zoloft. If you took all three of those, I don't expect you to know this, but I'm just shooting the shit here if you took all three of those is that bad is that a recipe for disaster i don't think that you would like the outcome i honestly don't know but it just does not sound like a good cocktail do you have any reuptake inhibitor recommendations for our present state of affairs maybe something we don't need a prescription for something naturally occurring or readily available well it's not naturally occurring but it's readily available this is my uptake 
So this is what's getting me by in the quarantine, just a little bit of rabbit hole whiskey. And of course, this is what we call uh, Pada Bing product placement. I learned it from the best. In an episode of The Sopranos that is multiple product placements on top of multiple yes. product placements. Yeah. Love absolutely. it. Absolutely. We'll talk more about Rabbit Hole down the line here. Uh, I have been looking into naturally occurring serotonin. Tryptophan, which is in Turkey, is a natural serotonin booster. Who would have ever thought that? It just makes you tired. Also salmon, uh, pineapple, aerobic exercise, and sunshine. Have you been able to get any sunshine? Do you like? Are you, do you take walks in your neighborhood? Are you doing any of that? I took a, I took a walk yesterday. I forgot what the sun looked like, so it was good to be reminded of that. Um, no, it's 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 great. I, you know, I think everybody should just get out a little bit right now. I mean, it, you you need it. I didn't realize how much I needed it until I just, you know, went for a, a little walk, got some curbside pickup food, and it, it did wonders. So. I highly recommend the sun. <laughs> Tony walks over to the chunk of marble. Love that expression. Note that we see a frame of a bridge or overpass in the backdrop next to his head. Shout out to Vin McKazian. Lots of continuity shots this episode. That's one of them. Johnny is resting next to Livia. Note that her stone sits a little higher than his. This was significant to me. She looms over everything yes. in her proximity, even in the afterlife, right? Yes. Her stone reads, a mother's love. <laughs> that must have been her request. I doubt Janice or Tony penned her epitaph. No, no, that was definitely like the priest just saying, what do you want there? And Tom just saying, I don't know, whatever you want. I would always, I kind of like to think that maybe Barbara took the lead on it because Janice and uh, Tony were done with it. So she probably came up with the only thing she could. Okay, so Tony sees Fran Feldstein, played by the actor Polly Bergen, who was in the original Cape Fear. Cape Fear, as many people know, is uh, the remake, is uh, one of my favorite Scorsese pictures. Love that continuity. We interviewed the screenwriter for the Scorsese Cape Fear. So seeing that she was a part of the, that storyline was kind of cool for me. According to Buscemi, she auditioned for this part. Um, he said, it's what you do to get on the show, which I thought was interesting. Production note, her hair was a wig. She's hard of hearing. I don't know where you fall on this, but part of me always thought she that this was part of her act. First indication that she's got some of that mamba mentality, Justin. Very nice. I, you know, I've I've always gone back and forth on this with her. I think where I stand after watching it this last time, I, I think she's hustling. I think she sets him up perfectly. Um, you know, she says that one line. Your dad always told me if you ever need anything, you can always call my son. And then she refused, you know, she sets him up to, to give an offer, like really easily sets him up. And then she refuses his offer. So she's trying to set up the long con. I think she's good. She's good. Tony thinks she's there for Livia at first, which is so naive of him, right? Then he remembers that she's the lady from Bambergers, the fur department. Another trivia question. Remember from episodes back, that's the now defunct department store chain from Newark. So Fran, we learn, was Johnny's girlfriend. She admits she's too vain for a hearing aid. Again, could be part of her shtick. But what am I, an audiologist now? 
she's a pro. Like you said, Johnny told me if I ever needed anything, I should just call his son. That was a long con play. I'm with you 100%. The hustle is always, Justin, especially in Soprano's world. This is precisely what had me questioning her motives right out of the gate. She's in this world. She was one of the girls in this world. She knows how to play the game. Yeah. My question for you is kind of moot at this point. It's not innocuous, right? Like you stand, no. you stand with her as she's playing the long con and uh, she's got dollars and cents on her mind. Yeah, I mean, I think she's just really setting him up. I, I mean, she she probably reads the she's she's up there in age, so she's probably looking at those obitu- obituaries just like Junior is. Interesting. And she probably sees like, oh, this is maybe a little relative of 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 this family. Their their burial's here. Let me go there. Maybe maybe set up show that I still love for and care for his father, and maybe I can get some some sympathy cash out of him. I think she's she's setting it up and she's playing the long con interesting take i am still on the side and i take a line from the last episode where you know when christopher hits the mother load and he finds out about uh, adriana and the two guys mm-hmm. that tell him say the fucking luck on this guy the fucking luck on tony i think it was completely accidental that she happened to be there and that plays into this maybe you can you maybe you'll you'll agree with me at the end when we i have a thing point i want to make but i like that you are taking a contrasting point of view because if nothing else it'll allow us to butt heads a little bit okay yeah and again i've gone back and forth on this but i after watching it this time and really analyzing it for for this i i think i'm a i'm a hardliner on this now all right i dig it let's cut to tony telling junior about fran uh, there's some great junior backstory stuff happening here and, re- and, and in, a, in a resulting understanding of his current disposition. He says he loved her and that she was the reason he never married. But I immediately go back to, come on now, remember Bobby Sanfilippo? Didn't she have anything to do with that? And I don't love his answer that he wouldn't want to subject a woman to this life of theirs. Yeah, right? that's the that's a total total cop out. I mean, he's just an exaggerator. He wants to make it into the story, but uh, there was nothing there. Pretty much every other guy in that life of theirs does. And also, yeah. this is a question I've never heard be pondered before. But what boss of a family doesn't have a home life? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's part and parcel, right? Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's 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 odd, and I mean that that's part of the the whole issue with junior in general i think uh he was you know passed up by his younger brother then his his nephew i mean he i think it was probably always uh maybe a lack of maturity that always held him back so this is just one example this is how it manifests he doesn't have a wife he's he's always just acting like a a little kid junior like a junior exactly he explains to tony that Johnny had it from the get-go, right? He showed up at a club one day in a side divorce suit. They were there to see a guy named Enzo Stuarty, and he mentions the two-inch lapel, and that was that. Side divorce is still in business, by the way. Uh, It's run by a guy named Danny Marsh now. There's a location in L.A., um, in the Valley, in Sherman Oaks, I believe. Um, Side divorce was known as the tailor to the stars, particularly close with the Rat Pack, and Enzo Stuardi was an Italian-American singer. Not a soprano, but a tenor. Junior's meds, to finish up this scene, they've got him singing to a tough room, Justin. Not unlike Stuardi, if I pick a name, there's always a connective tissue here. 
Not unlike Stuarty. By the way, you're doing much better than John because John couldn't hold himself together when I got to the point where I was going to try to make a funny. Not unlike Stuarty, because you're a tougher room. John laughs at my shit. You don't. Okay, I got to earn it. I got to earn it from you. No, I love it. I love it. Not unlike Stuarty when he sang at a Korean unification church wedding ceremony that made headlines in the early 80s. Cut to a new venue, a recovery meeting. I don't know if it was AA or Narcotics Anonymous. It's a recovery meeting. We meet JT, played by actor Tim Daly, who's a TV writer, which makes him a douchebag. Love writers poking fun at writers. Tim was nominated for an Emmy for his role in the show, which I thought was interesting, and has an interesting connection to the show in general and to David Chase. He appeared in Hill Street Blues back in the 80s and another show called Almost Grown, both David Chase projects. This part in The Sopranos was written specifically for Tim Daly. He did not audition for the role, to tie back to uh, the character of Fran Feldstein. He was tight with David in real life. Also recall that Daly was mentioned in an earlier episode. Trivia, do you know which episode he was mentioned in? Oh, give me a sec. Give me a sec. I know this is great. Not to put you on the spot. No, 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 I do know this. All right, give it to me. Give it to me. It was the Noah Tannenbaum dad dinner episode. That's right. right. He he name he name drops him. He He name name drops drops him. Anyway, the guy wrote in this show. Guy wrote snappy dialogue for Corbin Burnson, of course, of L.A. Law fame. Done a musical reference of that on a previous episode. And Corbin Burnson has been appearing in stuff since the late 60s. I did not know that he went that far Mm. back. He's still going strong, by the way. Also did a couple of episodes of The West Wing, which I've been watching again on and off um, because it's a happier show and it's very optimistic and I kind of need that right now. JT continues that he met Chris in rehab. Justin, the way they single each other out in the meeting, there's an artifice to it. It's a loose but fake relationship and we're going to watch it unfold slowly here. It definitely is, but I... I feel like they set it up to show that there is a really tight bond. Like these, these guys met in rehab. They're tight. They're, they're bonded by something that's, you know, residing in a higher power, something that really connects them. So I think that's what they're trying to establish. But as we, we see that, that bond isn't as strong. JT wants to talk about taking a moral inventory, which of course has ties to AA. But in researching it today, I found it also has applications outside that setting. And it's a thing that's having a bit of a moment right now uh, Hmm. in this quarantine. It involves writing an objective assessment of yourself. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a version of it myself, actually. I'll let you know how it turns out. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of basketball lamentations happening there. Um, (laughs) Justin, generally speaking... What are your feelings on introducing new characters from other TV shows in shows that you know and love? Are you accepting and inclusive of it, or is it tough for you? You know, I think I think sometimes it can work and sometimes it doesn't. Um, it can be a sign of desperation, but in some ways it can add a whole new flavor to, to a series. Uh, I think The Sopranos does it really well um, every time that they do it. They introduced, uh, you know, Ralph's character, Joe Bantaleone. They did that really well. That's a that's a famous actor that was just interjected in what season three. Um, 
Steve Buscemi, they did the same thing um, with the two Tonys. Um, and I think Tim, Tim Daly plays a much more minor role, but I think he still pulls it off. Um, but on the other hand, there's shows like Community. Uh, they tried it twice with Michael K. Williams and Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. That didn't work. Um, and The Office, obviously, when, when Michael Scott left, they replaced him with James Spader. I wasn't a fan of that. I know that that gets mixed reviews, but I don't think that that played well at all. So I, I think it depends on how you do it. Sopranos kills it every time that they do it. So I'm thumbs up for them. But other other shows, when they do it, it's it's kind of jumping the shark. They're trying to grasp at straws, I think. And that's why I asked the question, right? The Sopranos pulls it off, which is another notch on its belt of greatness, mm -hmm. right? It is super hard to do, to get invested in these new people. But Tim Daly comes right in and, and we're like, okay, I'm this is Chris's guy. I'm in. Let's go. Ride or yeah, die. Yeah, and you know what? Yeah, and it's interesting. It's interesting because um, Joey Pants and Steve Buscemi, they're kind of obvious that they would just fit right in and they'd be introduced and they they play these parts. But the fact that they did the same thing with with Tim Daly and they just interjected him and he's not necessarily, you wouldn't think of him as, you know, associating with the Sopranos immediately, but he works. He fits in perfectly. He plays that douchey writer so well. Cut to Tony and Melfi. T's telling her about Fran. It's clockwork at this point, right, Justin? Yeah. See Tony do, see Tony share a version of what he did with his therapist. You mentioned the moral inventory. They go from, <laughs> they want to talk about taking a moral inventory and they cut right to Tony on the couch with Melfi. So that's, that's a beautiful segue right there. Yes. I just don't want to overlook that. No, beautiful segue. But the big point here is that he's telling Melfi versions of the truth. And I got to admit, I started therapy midway through this pod at some point. I am now guilty of this cycle, Justin. I hmm. do and then share a version of the truth with the therapist. <laughs> and what determines what version and to what end would be a fascinating study because I don't think I'm alone and I think maybe I learned it from Tony subconsciously, I don't know, but what we choose to share selectively with our therapists versus what mm -hmm. is actually real, um, if we were able to bottle that up and do an actual study, it would be a fascinating documentary. Yeah. Well, and that's that's why the the relationship between, you know, the psychologist and the client is so important, you know, creating that that foundation from the beginning is, is so important and obviously it builds as you go on, but you need to feel like you're in a perfectly safe space. And if you, if anything's off and it makes you alter your story or a version of your story, then you're obviously not getting the most out of each session. So that's why that relationship is just so important. No natural segue here, but Pada Bing Fashion Corner, Tease Salmon Blazer is one of his best looks, in my opinion. Few people can pull that jacket off, that color, and actually make it look like other people could pull it off too. Also worth noting that when we first see Fran, she's wearing a salmon-esque outfit. More symmetry, color palette symmetry in this case. So in therapy, Tony defends his dad. It's because of Livia, he says, that he had girlfriends. Justin. Kind of a rhetorical question, but had Livia been wife of the year on every level, would it have mattered much? 
No, I think that's just what they do. That's part of the culture. Uh, look at, I mean, look at Tony. Carmella is, in essence, I mean, obviously she's not perfect and she has her flaws, but for what Tony's looking for, she's perfect. She's she is the perfect wife. She's the anti Livia, and he still does it. I mean, maybe that's him him mimicking his dad because he didn't know any better. So that's the only model that he had to kind of aspire to be. Mm. But in the but in the end, you know he makes his own decisions and I, I think it's really more of a, a cultural thing. So they all have Gumars, you know, if you don't have a Gumar and this has been referenced with, I think Johnny Sack and Bobby Bacala, if you don't have a Gumar, you're going to be made fun of, you're going to be the subject of ridicule. So it's almost like you have to have one. If you don't, you're, you're out, you're part of the out crowd. You're an outlier. And your upside is limited. You're never going to make that starting five. You think you're going to have the point guard throwing dimes to you? No, man. You're going to be standing in the corner waiting for the ball. It's like Ben. It's like Ben Simmons with no jumper. Exactly. You know, I'm going to come at you with a couple of these. Just please, so you know. please, so man, yourself. please brace bring it. Um, it's one of the things I've missed the most. Like us, Melfi furrows her brow at Tony. Tony can't recall Livia ever going to visit his dad at the cemetery. Unlike Fran, is his point. But my whole thing with that is everybody mourns differently. I am all for the Rocky style folding chair and spending the better part of a morning with the lost soul. But I also get the other side of it. Do you give Livia a pass on that too? I don't know. I don't know. I not really, but I mean, that's, that's par for the course with her. So I, I mean, I don't really give, give her a pass, but it's just, it doesn't really shock me. She's just, she's very selfish. She's only worried about her own victimization and her own self-pity. So it doesn't shock me. Obviously, I don't, I don't think it's right. Uh, you pretend you, you talk about how your husband was a saint and how you miss them when in reality, you guys didn't have the, the greatest relationship and then you don't see him. Obviously there's fault there. Um, but it just, it doesn't surprise me with her. That's just her standard MO. Well, Melfi takes her side says maybe it was hard. I'm kind of with her there. And then Tony drops the oh poor her, which is a nice nugget from the past, but also brings up an interesting question. Something that I've always wondered about Tony. Uh, He's got an old school streak, right? And I thought time was supposed to heal all wounds. Uh, Whatever happened to rest in peace, right? These are all things you think Tony would subscribe to, and he probably does with his dad but he doesn't with his mom and that's an interesting contrast that we're going to come back to melfi of course then comes in this is a great dr justin moment here uh it's perfect that this is the episode we're doing together again um melfi asks if he was attracted to her dr justin was melfi suggesting oedipus overtones here or was it something more meaningful than that I think in a small way she was, but I, I also think she was just kind of fishing for something more. Um, from Tony's perspective, he looks at Fran as another way to prop his father up. That's why, you know, when he's, he's talking about her, he, he really just puts on the, all, all these superlatives on her and how she's, you know, she was amazing. You should have seen her in the heyday. Um, so he props his father up, I think, as a means to, to blame his mom. He always needs someone to blame. So in this episode, we finally start to see that all of Tony's issues may not stem from his mom. Um, his his father deserves his fair share of blame. And uh, 
you know, his, his view of Johnny Boy needs to remain untarnished so that he can still heap all of that blame right onto Livia. So I think that Melfi was really trying to get Tony to start going against his father and maybe cutting his mom a little bit of slack and seeing it from her perspective, because that's in reality, obviously his, his father wasn't perfect and did a lot of things that, that were really bad. Um, and Tony just chooses to neglect all of that and place all of the blame on Livia. So I think, yeah, she was, you know, throwing some edible overtones there and there's probably something to that, but I think she was really just trying to, to make him see the light and that, you know, maybe there's, you know, you're trying to prop your father up a little bit too much. And by looking at this woman as, as your own mother and being maybe attracted or not attracted or just bringing that up in general, that puts the Oedipal complex in play too. But I think it was more about just trying to chip away at his, uh, I guess, godlike view of his father. Mm. It's so fascinating that you can look at it from different vantage points. You're thinking about it from the dad. I've always seen it as Tony putting up a wall around how he deals with women in his life, Mm. using his mother as an excuse or reason to think about his underlying behavior. And I think this is what Melfi's checking him on, but he wasn't intellectually keen enough to pick up on it. Um, But you gave me something new to think about, which I love. It's like, she's calling him out on his dad. I never looked at it that way. And that's, uh, that's why I love this. That's why I love doing this. Back on Chris and JT at IHOP. JT's moving back to Jersey. Justin, I got to say, man, I love Jersey, but you don't hear that too often, okay? If one does move back to Jersey, it can't be for the best of reasons. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) This is indicating that JT, things are not going so well for JT, okay? Yeah. Um, You're not a successful Hollywood screenwriter who decamps to New Jersey is my point. You're trying to go to Hollywood. Yes. You're trying to get there. He explains to Chris that he got a meeting set up with Dick Wolf's guy. Dick Wolf, of course, is the guy behind the Law & Order franchise. That brand, Justin, has spun off into numerous other series and procedurals, books. It's the whole fucking enchilada. He worked, interestingly, connective tissue to The Sopranos, as everything is. He worked on Hill Street Blues before going on to create Law & Order, which... Uh, I think is the longest running TV show of all time. I did not fact check that. It's either that or Gunsmoke. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it's right up there. He has, this is what's fascinating to me about Dick Wolf. Talk about in the show, Chris was impressed that he had a limo and JT says, you know, he's got a battleship if he wants it. I think he might have something that's a little bit more like a David Geffen thing going on right now with uh, his quarantine. He has um, created... 35 shows, scripted and non-combined. 35 shows. Justin. Okay. (laughs) Let KD know who the real MVP is. Nice. Well done. Okay. Relic relic (laughs) of the past. They're both smoking. See, I got to catch up to my my line You know what, Vic? Just for that reference... You the real MVP. (laughs) (laughs) You the real MVP. Okay. Relic of the past. They're both smoking inside the IHOP. I haven't seen anybody smoke inside a restaurant since I can't even remember when. Note the product placement though, okay? In an episode filled with product placements, note the placement of the pack of Marlboros. Subtle, guys. 
Chris mentions he saw Dick Wolf at Rayo's, another product placement. Remember, that's one of the oldest Italian restaurants in the United States. Been around since the late 1800s. And Frank Pellegrino, who played Agent Cubitoso, owned it until he passed away. Rest in peace. Then he admits he's had some drinks. Every time I see this scene, there you go, do your product placement. Every time I see this scene, Justin, I'm reminded of the great DMX and his song, Slippin', a somewhat ode to Christopher, okay? Justin, DMX says in that track, See, to live is to suffer. To survive, well, that's to find meaning in the suffering. I feel like slipping that track to Chris every time he regresses so he can cue the music, so he can get back on his feet, so he can tear shit up. JT's in a bit of a rush. He's got to meet somebody. Chris says he'll get the bill. They hug. Then Chris gives us a suspicious look. I always took that as Chris keeping chits, that he paid JT's bill. That dinner was anything but free. But what's JT supposed to do? Be scared? What is this? Pulp Fiction now? Did you catch that too, or do you think that he's jonesing? Because we're going to find out that he thought he was jonesing. But I felt like Chris was going to make him pay for that dinner some way. Serious question. Mm-hmm. Are you pro IHOP? You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not really pro breakfast. I'm not a big breakfast guy. Um, I will say that I'm we're done more here. of a... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't discriminate what I eat based off of time. I'm a all-time opportunities eater. So... You can put a steak in front of me at, you know, 10 a.m. I'm good to go. I generally just don't eat in the mornings. I don't really have an appetite. But, you know, why would I choose eggs or cereal over a nice steak or a good uh, Langer's pastrami sandwich or something like that, you know? Look at you dropping the L.A. references over here from uh, Louisville. Been, well, that's that, and that's the one thing in Louisville that they don't have is a, is a good Jewish deli. And I'm like, I'm dying. I'm dying for a good pastrami. So, Well, you kind of motherfucked my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you had a gun to your head, Denny's uh-huh. or IHOP? No, so I, I would I would go Denny's yes! over IHOP. Yes! Um, and I that's because I had a Denny's close to my parents' house in Woodland Hills, um, and they would have a better selection of non-breakfast items than IHOP. So they would have, like, the chicken fingers. Uh, with all the dipping sauces, that was that was my go-to at Denny's. So, when I balled out on the mean streets of La Jolla, California, in college, we would go to Denny's and I would get those said chicken fingers and I would order mm-hmm. the big Texas chicken fajita skillet. And for there my money, man, that is one of the most money meals ever, still to this day. That's it. Are you with That's me? It. See, I'm with you. I'm with you. See, that's not breakfast. 
So you went non-breakfast at Denny's, though. We go late at night. Um, but yeah, Denny's over IHOP all day. I was hoping you'd say that. Uh, I can continue with... We can keep the show going. <laughs> we don't have to turn off. We're done here was a Johnny Sack reference. That's all that was. I just wanted to do yeah. a Johnny Sack reference. Okay. Cut to Junior looking up recently deceased Italians for funerals he can go to. Immediately calls Melvoin. This is a great little vignette in this episode. I love, I love this little device they used. His gesture... His gesture, okay, <clears throat> brace myself here. NBA reference coming. His gesture to put the receiver on the table before dialing. Something about it, Justin. It's mm-hmm. like James Harden after he drops a defender and watches them for a couple, three seconds before shooting the basketball. I was at the game where he did that to, uh, against the Clippers to Wesley Johnson. And he, he, he stood there for a good five seconds until the help defender was about to come and he got that off and uh it was it was it was something they still play that clip all the time all the time i've watched it since because there's nothing else to watch yeah (laughs) that's where this came from actually um the other client in melvoin's office i don't know if you have an opinion on this but i swear that was push a t when he was part of clips no 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 No? but but, but Melvoin has a very uh, diverse set of clients. You know, he, the guy really knows what he's doing. Another thing that you think of when you see that, it's the Sopranos wire crossover happening, potentially. Cut to Tony at Franz. Tony brings her flowers. Um, did the type of flower signify anything? I'm asking from Melfi's perspective. Was it friendship versus sexual? Now, I said I'm not a breakfast guy. I'm even less of a flowers guy. Me too. So That's why I read the question. I have no idea what type of flowers they were. Were they orchids or something? I don't. I, I have no idea. We're gonna keep it as friendly, but there are moments when you think Tony's gonna go for it a little bit with her, and I think that's the beauty of the writing. They go right to the line, but they don't cross it. But there's there's a couple of moments, and the flowers symbolize depending on the color. That's all I know. If you give somebody yellow flowers, there's that's associated with friendship. If you give somebody yeah. purple flowers or red flowers, that's could be considered something sexual or intimate. That's why I. Yeah. That's the idea of it. It's really interesting. I never really thought about this too much um, because they do they do play a little bit of the the sexuality card with his relationship with her, um, and it's not super vague. But I I was trying to think of why why is he doing this? And Tony really, in in spite of his relationship with his mother, he really has a, a reverence for the elderly. Um, he really does the the uh, the black pastor um that he he ends up doing a deal with his his father um he ends up having a really good relationship with him and and going you know going meeting with uh fran and taking her out to dinner and buying her stuff and obviously his relationship with with junior and there's a there's a few more examples throughout this series um so he really you know i always was trying why is he you know obviously his father is part of the motivation to kind of um be with Fran and he's kind of on a fact finding mission with her. But I, I think he just really respects the elderly. He he respects a previous era. In the first episode, the pilot episode of the entire series, he talks about how he feels like he's coming at the tail end of this great thing that once was. So I, I think that obviously he was really trying to reconnect with his father in this and just kind of pull as much out of Fran as he could. But I think it's just a, a real rev, reverence for another time, a better time. And that's what he's really trying to dig into with her. 
Her decor, man. Son of a bitch. Any side divorce suit Johnny Boy wore would have <laughs> run off his body and out the door of that place. I said it. But that's kind of the point, right? Everything about Fran Felstein is an out-of-body experience. And that's why the character is so perfect. Just when we're getting into a comfortable lather with this season and where it's going, she happens. Okay. Tony sees his dog in a picture. Her son, Bruce, we learn, with the dog, is a food service director with El Al. Justin, I've always had a low-key fascination with El Al. And this is a perfect opportunity to explore it a little. I have been on El Al. Their brand, as I'm sure you're well aware and intimately familiar yeah. with, their brand is synonymous with security. Um, but that's all I really ever knew about it. El Al means to the skies in Hebrew. Is that an accurate translation? I have no idea. And it is the only commercial airline to employ missile defense systems. And it has one of the most stringent security protocols of any airline. One of the things they do is put bags through decompression chambers to check for explosives. But Justin, who am I? Wesley Snipes in Passenger 57 now? Nice. Well done. Well done. My one time I I went to Israel, um, if, if people don't know, there's this program called Birthright Israel. And what they do is they allow um, Jewish Americans, I don't know if this extends outside of America, but they allow um, Jewish kids um, basically an all expenses paid trip to Israel to get kind of acquainted with the homeland. Um, and El Al is the flight that you take there. And it's basically free. I think over time, the, the, you know, the funding for this has kind of gone down a little bit. So now you know, people in LA have to like, pay for their flights to New York and, and yada, yada, yada. But our, our flight was um, to Israel from uh, New York. And when they got to my security, and we talked about me being a Persian Jew, um, you know, my, my first name is Justin. My last name is, is Pakdaman, and that's a very, uh, it's a very neutral last name for a reason. It actually means clean slate, uh, literally clean skirts, but clean slate in Farsi. And it was changed because of my family had a very Jewish last name that they had to change because they were in Iran. But I digress. So my middle name is Payam, a very Persian name. And they were grilling me about my middle name on my <laughs> before I got onto my flight to Israel from the US because, you know, I- Iran is obviously uh, hostile towards Israel. So they were just double checking me. Have I been to Iran? Uh, what's my what's my heritage? How is my relationship? And I was like, my parents left Iran well, during the revolution, partly because of religious persecution. So you know, once once that was understood, it was fine. But they were very rigorous in their security uh, precautions. So was it just a series of questions that they asked you, or did you have to like furnish or prove anything? No, I mean, I. I didn't have anything to hide. So, I mean, I wasn't, wasn't worried. I didn't really have to do anything, but the, the, the amount of questioning on my middle name, one just like really random, you know, who cares about a middle name? That seemingly innocuous thing was just harped on. So that, that that's just a, a really interesting thing. 
Totally. The security aspect of it is what had me fascinated. And they mentioned it on the show. And I was like, you know what? If I'm ever going to dive into it, it might as well be now. So, and I'm glad that you had an anecdote that you could share to validate it. Um, did trivia with a guy today who worked, was an employee of El Al. He called in from, or zoomed in from Tel Aviv. And so he got the question. Uh, one of my questions was like, what airline did Fran's son work for? And he's like, we, we worked together at the same time. It was kind of crazy how it all fell together. Uh, Fran observation. She wields a knife quite casually when she talks. And I believe there's a story there. And the way she's working Tony suavely, she's a throat cutter, Justin. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling long you. Long con. That's, that's what I'm, I'm, she's in the long con. That's a subtle hint. It Get is. me paid. or Give me my fucking money. Basically what Tony tells Phil later on the episode, give me my fucking money or you're going to get it. Exactly. Nice connection. Tony puts two and two together. Livia made Johnny give the dog away. Fran says Johnny used to remind her of Victor Mature. Google the guy. I promise you, it's true. They looked identical. Mature was, of course, an actor. Um, Not for nothing, Justin, but Fran looked incredible back in the day. That photo of her, it's her real photo that she gave to the show. Everyone else was photoshopped in. Oh, wow. Interesting. And Hesh, George Gershwin over here. Again, look it up. Spot on. Description. They did their thing back in their day. Yes. They were nice. They were nice. Gershwin, of course, is the beloved composer and pianist. I still can never get over the fact that Rhapsody in Blue was his first major work. Puts the majority of humans on planet Earth to shame. That's all I got to say. Fran calls Hesh a whoremaster. And cheap. Justin, she lets it rip. Takes no prisoners. She's jacking threes early and often. Actually, kind of sounds like Olivia to extend Melfi's curiosity to its natural conclusion. Right? I, that's, that, I thought the exact same thing. Because she, she would badmouth Hush too. She tried to, to get him taxed in, in a, one of the first... Um, episodes of the whole Great series. recollection. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. I was thinking that too. Livia didn't like anybody that Johnny liked, right? Yeah. And by extension, this is that same thing. Like it's, but Tony hasn't picked up on it yet. The question I'm going to have for you at the end is, does he? We'll see. She goes on to say that Hesh screwed her out of some proceeds from a racetrack. Chickamauga in New Egypt. Ugh. See? Justin. That there is a place in New Jersey called New Egypt got me all worked up (laughs) to Perth Amboy proportions. I cracked my knuckles, ran to the kitchen to grab a snack, (laughs) sipped some orange juice, daydreaming about what fascinating nuggets of information I'd be able to parse and share. But Justin, sadly, the most interesting thing about New Egypt is its name. An entire paragraph was devoted to describing the various sports fields that comprise its recreation zone. Nowhere in their recreation zone was there a basketball court. And curiously, the Chickamauga racetrack was not included in the recreation activities of the town either. 
The racetrack we see in the show is a place called the Riverhead Raceway, which is real and is still going strong. It's in Riverhead, New York, which is way out on Long Island. I wish I knew this before. I was searching everywhere for that to be my background. Oh. And now I'm stuck with Chris and JT Dolan. Hold on a second. AA meeting. (laughs) Hold on a second. I'm going to do something here because you said that. One second. Oh, no. You have it ready. One second here. Wow. Boom. Look at that. Chickamauga, baby. Um, Right next to the Peconic Bay out by the Hamptons. Okay, Phil Leotardo. Let's actually, this is good timing that you mentioned that because now we can look at this and, and wonder. Phil Leotardo was a partner too. And before we have a chance to collectively wonder, what the fuck were they doing in business with Phil Leotardo? Yeah. Johnny Boy, we learned, cut him in to pay off a poker debt. Interesting, because I, I always thought Johnny Boy preached to Tony, never gamble, Anthony. Never gamble. You remember so, that? Yes. I remember that, but he was a man and he honored his debts. So you got to give him that. Not too much hypocrisy there. Lannister's over here. Lannister's and Johnny, Johnny Boy Soprano always honor their debts. Justin, did it surprise you at all that Tony was so knowledgeable about the details of his dad's day-to-day business? Yeah, he often, he, he really often is understanding of like what the history of his dad's business dealings have been. He's um, a historian of that. He thing is, of but what, one thing, one thing I've always wanted to know is what's the, what's the overlap? How, cause obviously Tony was in the business while his dad was in the business. There's no denying that. And there's been mentions of that several places. Um, but I, I was always really curious, like how, how far up did Tony climb and where was his dad when he made that climb there? And, how much business did they do with each other? Um, how, how many times did they partner up on something? So, you know, if, if that's the case where they were really close as far as, you know, outside of being father and son as business associates in some way, then I, it, it would make sense that that kind of information would, would make its way to Tony. Hopefully we get a glimpse of that in the movie. Yes. Right? Is that done? Everything's being pushed back. So not one thing, not one thing. Which and is, I know you're, you're, you might be as excited as I am. April 19th. April 19th. Which, hold on. Don't tell me. April Come 19th. On. Is that Come the, on. is that the draft? It's the last dance. Oh, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, baby. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. They're bringing so they that, early. that up. Yeah. They're bringing that early. That was supposed to be like late June. Now it's April 19th. They're launching it. I can't wait for that, man. That's going to be amazing. Silver um, linings. The fact that it's been sitting in a vault for all these years, and now it's coming to life. It's like like Voltron, man. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be so fun to relive it, especially when there's nothing it's else to weird. watch, too. It just makes it that much better. I know. Timing couldn't be better. I selfishly wish they just released all of them, but they're going to do it like two a week, I think. Like 10 parts. Yeah, there's... there's, there's just not, release it all, I guess too much. Just release it all, but I think what they're planning on doing is... Uh, putting them out on Netflix um, at a certain point. Because I know overseas, um, they're not like, I just saw like on a Instagram comment saying like, hey, I'm not going to be able to get this in Australia. And it was like on a Genie Bus post. Mm. And Genie Bus responds to this guy in Australia saying, it's going to be on Netflix the, the day after the first episode releases. So that might just be like an overseas thing, but. Or maybe she broke some non-disclosure agreement that she was <laughs> not supposed to break. 
<laughs> Maybe. And now Netflix owns the Lakers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By the way, how do you feel about the Clippers having their own stadium now? I, I, um, are you happy or are you suspicious? No, I am. I don't recognize the Clippers' existence in LA. The Clippers, Clippers are dead to me. They should just go to Seattle. Like, what, what are they doing? Oh, what that's it. I, I might root for them if they did that. Actually, just because I, I think Seattle yeah, should have I'd, a team. You know what? I'd root for them if they left LA. But as it is now, to me, I dislike the Clippers more than I dislike the Celtics because they're coming. Not because they're coming. They're just like, what are you doing? Get out of here! Like this is an LA town. You know what? Why? Why are you? Why are you here? Like you don't have the fans. You don't even have home games. At home games against the Lakers, you get booed. Like this past the the, the last game. Uh, that was a great game, by the way. The the Clippers Lakers. Um, they were booed at home. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a Laker town. Everybody knows that. It's a Laker town. Hey, I'm all for I'm all for them figuring out Seattle ASAP. I think Seattle is it's a disservice to the league. It's a disservice to fans. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching some old Sonic stuff because I'm doing uh, Jason Williams retrospective on Run It Back and the where he crossed up Gary Payton. Man, That's, basketball. I saw, that. I saw that. Basketball culture in Seattle is real, and they should have a team. Yeah. It's not right. Anyway, okay, we digress too much. Johnny's piece was supposed to go to her when he died. Um, Hesh gave her 500 bucks. Justin, at that point, why even bother, right? Yeah. Painting on the wall by the bar, I got to say this, you know, I'm going to notice everything that's on a wall. Looks like an interpretation of Daniel Day-Lewis in the name of the father cover. Look carefully, it's there. And because I invoked Daniel Day-Lewis's name, I got to say that for that movie, he lost 50 pounds, slept in a jail cell for several days, <laughs> and had crew members physically and verbally abuse him during filming. Guy is just on another level, always has been. Okay. They go for a drive to the racetrack. He tells her about Junior. She says he did no such thing. Suffer in silence, that is. He stalked her. And she's convinced he told Livia about her and Johnny. Crazy thing is, at this point, we can totally see Junior doing that. In fact, I'd be surprised if little Junior sabotages weren't explored a little more in the movie. You know, other ways he tries to undermine his brother. Fran calls Livia statuesque, to which I immediately thought, like a Kenyan Martin dunk off a Jason Kidd lob pass. Justin, speaking of statues, does a Kobe statue go up this year? Well, would it have if we weren't going through all this stuff? Um, I don't think it's a 2020 thing. 2021, absolutely. 100%. Do you see- now, the better question is, the better question is, and this might be what you were right about to ask me, but I'm going to ask you, what is it? What? Oh, that's it? a great debate. That's a great debate. It's got to be that dunk, that reverse dunk where he double the, clutches it. Going, you know where he's where he like where he scoops it down by his in between his legs. I don't think it's going to be a dunk. I don't even think it's going to be like a basketball play. I think it's going to be him on the scores table after winning the championship against the Celtics and just like standing on it in front of the whole crowd. I think it's going to be something like that. Either that or there's a, a image of him that is really famous where he's like pulling on his jersey. Yes. Um, yes. And I think I think that it's I think it's 
but I think it's going to be him standing on the scores table. I think it might even be something with, I don't know, maybe something with like Gigi. That's but what I, I was just going to say. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's appropriate. You don't think so? That's my thought. I don't think so. Hmm. Do you see a street getting named after him in LA? Absolutely. I think over time, there's going to be a lot of different types of monuments. Okay. Back on Fran. She offers T a taste of her Remy Martin VSOP. Cognac. One for the road, she says. That expression is attributed to traveling salesmen who would drink after a day slinging their wares. The last drink would be for the journey home so they could go to bed, get up, and do it all over again. Tony is taken with her. This is where you think, like, is something going to happen here? Yeah. Justin, not that you actually do this, but if you did, what would your one-for-the-road drink choice be? This could also be a great opportunity to shamelessly plug your company, too. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what would I drink for the road? Uh, by the way, what's the website? Is it rabbithole.com? Rabbitholedistillery.com. Rabbitholedistillery.com. Um, the Instagram is at rabbithole. Amazing, amazing whiskeys. Everybody should check it out. We actually, one thing that's that's really cool. Yeah, is, hold on, uh, I want to I want to set it up for you. You told me that you guys are actually doing something really cool for uh, the, this pandemic that we're in. Um, you're a manufacturing company. Tell us what you're doing. So we we have a distillery in downtown Louisville. Um, you know, we're known for our our Kentucky bourbon um, and rye whiskeys, but. One thing that happened recently was during this whole pandemic, obviously we wanted to figure out a, a way to help out. And uh, we were approached to make hand sanitizer because of this insane shortage that's going on. So we've, we've uh, actually produced um, hand sanitizer that we, and haven't sold any of it. It's all been donated to, to FEMA and towards uh, local health, health workers on the front line and first responders here. Um, in the local community and a, a, a little bit outside as well. So that's a, a really, really cool thing that I think that we're doing. So we're really excited about that. If you go to our, our Instagram uh, page at rabbit hole, you can actually see like the bottling of the hand sanitizer in our, our distillery. So very cool. A, man. a really cool thing. Yeah. Very really cool. excited. Cut to the racetrack. Fran asks about Carm, Tony's mom. He acknowledges that his marriage is on the rocks. Almost like, Fran's dear Abby over here. Then he talks about Valentina. Uh, he calls her an art dealer, a myth to appropriate autopsy's wonderful use of the word again. He lights up over Valentina as compared to Carm. He's like Damian Lillard when he sees the defender giving him enough room for a logo three. Tony continues. She's Latin, but you know, mm-hmm. from Spain. Justin, she's actually not from Spain at all, wasn't it? Cuba. She's yeah, she's Cuban. Um, I think that's his just racist way of saying the good kind of right. Latin. Exactly, um, exactly. Not not from one of those shithole countries. If, if I'm able to steal a phrase from somebody else, um, that's just that's just his his ignorant way of trying to prop her up too. Just like you know, he's doing with his dad, and just like he's doing with with. Uh, Fran. He's just trying to prop these people up. He's perpetuating their myth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Justin, notice how he's telling himself these little lies 
consistently throughout this episode. We're going to see this again until the very last frame, right? Which is why I was so taken with Autopsy's choice of the word myth. Because this whole thing is, and the title ties it all together so perfectly, in Camelot. Camelot is this mythological place, right? And intentionality is part of this show, but if it's really that deep, this is on another level here. Cut to Chris and JT working out. Justin, remember Jim's? Apparently, uh, my body does not. I don't think anybody's working out until the end of the summer at the earliest, right? I mean, are you going to... I actually went. I went for a run on on Sunday, which was definitely needed and definitely a good barometer to let me know how out of shape that I am. Um, but I'm I'm paying for two gym memberships. Um, I pay for one gym membership at the JCC that I go to play basketball on every Sunday, and then I have another gym that I pay for every month that I just don't go to. So I pay for two gyms to go one day a week. You're supporting small business, is what you're doing. Okay, See? I'm a hero, and I order Uber Eats all the time. I'm I'm a local hero. Speaking of local businesses in LA, one-time local businesses, Delicious Vinyl, JT's Delicious Vinyl shirt. I had one of those. It was an Urban Outfitters really? staple once upon a time. Uh, Delicious was a hip-hop label out of LA, and it put out Tone Lokes, Wild Thing, and Funky Cold Medina, among many others. That was their main artist. Tone those Lokes. were the, Tone Loke. I think the Far Side was another one, but yeah, that was their corner of uh, the Got hip-hop it. universe. Chris is convinced JT was Jones in the other night. JT denies it full stop. Uh, he didn't really sell it, though. Gotta say. Yeah. Chris says he'll take his action. No need to make trips to the track. He's betting a dime each. Does that mean 2K? Is that what that means? A dime? Yeah, I think a dime is a thousand, yeah. Okay. On account that he just got a 3K residual from a script he penned on a That's Life episode. That's Life, Chris calls, is the fake guinea show with Paul Sorvino. It aired, it was a real show from 2000 to 2002, CBS drama, uh, which was designed to be, interestingly, a counterpoint to The Sopranos. It was an Italian-American show in New Jersey, but unaffiliated with organized crime. Not surprisingly, it floundered. Uh, had a Friday time slot, um, but it had a big cast. Ellen Burstyn, Paul Sorvino, and Kevin Dillon. But gotta say, man, a lot of balls. You know what's really interesting about that scene? It's uh, it's such a callback to um, Sc- Davy Scatino. Yes, um, and and not even that. It's the the Artie Bucco scene too with Tony, where he says the cobwebs are now revealed, or the cobwebs are now removed. That's that's this. Like I'm I'm seeing it right from the start with with Chris. There's so many parallels with. Chris and Tony, even though like you look at Chris and you think, oh, he's this this immature guy. He always has his mind for business. He's never been like a Jackie April where he's, you know, a fake guy. Like he's good at what he does and he knows what's going on. And he sees, you know, he's a he's a shark and he just, you know, sees this little fish swimming along and this guy like just hints towards a little gambling addiction and Chris just knows when to pounce. It's instinctual for him. It is. Back over to the racetrack real quick. Fran's charming the pants off Tony. She's using a linen kerchief. And together they see the racetrack has been sold. This is my point to you, though. Tony's timing, right? You think that it was all planned by Fran. Yeah. And my thing is, had Tony's Aunt Conchetta not passed away, he might have never bumped into Fran. And here's my point. Hesh could have slipped the sale through undetected. Okay, hold on to that. Just hold on to it. Cut to Tony at Hesh's. 
Tony's complaining about the track. He never got a taste. What's he more mad about? His taste or getting Fran taken care of? That he didn't know what was going on or that Fran is potentially going to get gypped? I think it's that he didn't know what was going on. Um, I think the reason for the meeting is obviously Fran. So that I'm not saying that that was unimportant to him, but just the history of knowing Tony and the, the way that he operates, uh, obviously respect and making sure that the way that people view him um, is really important. So if people view him as a person that can get cheated out of something or can be left out of the know, uh, I think that that really gets to him and that's really what causes him to react. So I, I, I think that frame plays a little bit into it, but in the end, it's really more about the slight that he feels is towards him. And that's because he didn't know what was going on. Note, Hesh has horses everywhere. Recall, the Hesh's Horses Limited series, a Potabing archived show, starring Hugh Grant reprising his role of horse and hound journalist in Notting Hill. Okay, I just had to do that because I just watched that with Katie. Hesh hands over Johnny's end, 25%. Too easy, Not so Justin? cheap at all. Not so cheap at all. Yeah, but too easy. He just gave, was that was that at all because he was caught with his pants down? I think he he Hesh more than anybody knows who Tony is and he knows when to pick his battles and he knows how to deal with them. And he knew that there's no going around this. You know, he's not gonna fight Tony. So what what was the point? You know, to just argue over X amount of money that he knows he's going to lose. He's a smart guy. So I think he's just picking his battles and he knows that this is something that he, sh- he should just give up. I'm with you. It's not worth it. Yeah. Cut to Melvoin pleading with the prosecutor to let Junior attend multiple funerals in the same month. He's also got horses all over the place. Statues, pictures. Melvoin closes the deal. You're worth every fucking cent. Melvoin says, appreciate. Justin, this reminds me of the recent Larry David appreciate episode. Did you see it? Of course I saw it. Thank God. Uh, Larry decries it as a bullshit word. Right now, my goal in life is to own a spite store. If I can get to the level of owning a spite store, that's when you know you've made it. That's, That's the true definition of success. To be able to just buy a property or a store just to get back at somebody. That's, that's the pinnacle of success for me. You know, um, I don't think this is an overstatement, but Larry David is right up there. Curb Your Enthusiasm is right up there with The Sopranos in terms of getting better. It's getting better, man. And that spite store model is so fucking smart. It is so perfect. And it is so timely too, you know, because of the culture that we live in right now with the leadership in our country. It is so perfectly timed. The best thing on TV, I'm, I'm going to, I've been wondering about this myself because I haven't really been watching a lot of stuff, but uh, Larry David, he's the best thing on TV right now by far. Um, yeah. This season has been incredible. I completely agree. So Melvoin, the funeral we learn, this is so great. The funeral we learn is going to have Scottish bagpipes at it. Justin, that's how good Melvoin is, okay? Perfect piece of writing. <laughs> Cut to the bing. Chris is smoking. JT comes in. 
Don Provolone, he calls Chris. JT won big, we learned, and Chris hands him a stack of cash. Asks if he wants to parlay it. There's that instinct you were talking about. Offers to get him into a high-stakes game with the likes of David Lee Roth, a nod from episodes past. Chris admits he used again. Weak sauce, this guy, man. JT's judgy too, for us pretty much. He's the audience surrogate of sorts here. Guy just had an intervention. What's going on? Justin, I know you bet sports, or you did in the past. What are sports bettors doing these days? So I will tell you, my my degenerate gambler ways have uh, are are in my past. Uh, not not uh, you know sat on Cosette <laughs> in the past type of thing, but just not not really partaking too much. Um, but my ears still to the ground. To the there you go, baby. No, I still, I still like to get a little taste. Uh, but, but the crazy thing that's going on now, and maybe I, this would have been me if this was three, four years ago, is people are putting on. Um, this is no joke, and this is just p- between like people that are with each other. But people are putting on Madden and Two K simulations and betting on it. I am not kidding. That's really something that's going on, and I'm not going to lie to you. This was five years ago. I might, I might have been in on it. I might have been down. I might have been. Wow, down. you're putting your fate in the hands of a EA Sports algorithm, is what you're saying. Well, according to Elon Musk, we're all on a simulation. So what's the difference, right? Okay. Cut to Johnny Sachs Social Club. The group is clustered to discuss. I almost made that my backdrop, by the way. The group is clustered to discuss the proceeds of the racetrack. It's a great shot. A look in at them. It's so simple, but so powerful. The separation from us and them for a moment before we get to be right in the middle of the table with all of them. 625K. That's it. Phil wonders. Johnny Sack says Tony gets 150. 25% comes out of Phil's end. The rest comes from Hesh. Wonder how Hesh feels about that. Phil gets testy. Tony gives it right back. This ain't the 70s. Justin, why is Tony so angry? Is it just because of Tippy, or is something else going on? No, it's Phil is trying to sun him. Phil is treat him like a little kid. You know, I, I here's a here's an NBA reference for you. A couple of years back, Lakers are playing the Clippers. Um, oh, I know exactly what you're going to say, but say it, say it. How the song Chris Paul get into a little tussle? And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're like, make up a little bit. And then Pau Gasol goes and rubs Chris Paul's head. And then he, like, flips out on him. And then they, like, have, like, a whole press conference and talk about it. And Chris is like, he's trying to sun me. He's trying to sun me. And that's what Phil – that's exactly what Phil is trying to do to Tony. He's like, hey, kid. You know, he's talking about him like a kid. And that's, he's losing it. You know, I go back. Tony doesn't like th- these slights. He knows, he knows the importance of perception. Uh, perception is reality. And if – uh, Phil Leotardo is disrespecting him and treating him like a kid, then he's going to, you know, make sure that he knows that's not the way you're going to talk to me. And he, he rectifies it by losing his shit on him. No respect. No respect. Phil says. Johnny Sack goes, Philly, he's a boss. And then we get a great Phil Leotardo soundbite. The first of many. Jersey? Come on, huh? Justin, he's been sitting on that line for 20 fucking years. You know what? The one thing that I I like in it, the more you watch this series, you start to look at 
characters in, in different ways. And I think my first go around with this uh, series, I wasn't a big Johnny Sack guy. I wasn't a big fan. I looked at him like, you know, he was like breakfast to me. Um, and you know what? Now I have, a, I have a lot of respect for him. He always stands up for Jersey. He always stands up for the Jersey crew. Carmine talks down on them a couple of times. He, he basically says exactly what Philly Charles says is Jersey. Um, little Carmine a little bit too. Definitely Phil Leotardo and some of his his crew um, constantly do it. But Johnny Sackers are like, they bring in a lot of money, Carmine. He's always there to defend. And I think part of it is his friendship with Tony. And so Johnny Sack, I always, uh, you know, I always commend him for, for you know, staying true to who he is. So I really appreciate that. I like that. He's a pragmatist. He's a pragmatist. Cut to Tony at Fran's. Enough already with this Fran. He tells her she's going to get a nice cut. She doesn't ask how much. That was all class to me, I thought. Perpetuating that vibe, right? She's excited to show him something instead. He checks his watch, seems a little irritated, which always kind of made me wonder a little bit about it. I don't know if you have a point or thought on that. She shows him a kerchief with JFK's initials monogrammed with lipstick. He smells it. that odd to you? Very. <laughs> I got to admit, I got to admit, it's a nervous tick of mine. I always smell something when I hold it. If I pick up anything, it's almost subconscious at this point. I, I do a quick one of these. So Fran explains to us uh, and to Tony that she had a fling with JFK. March 61. You just mentioned you finished watching Mad Men. This will be kind of fun for you too because we get a little Mad Men JFK back in the day as well. This was just after his inauguration. The ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country speech. He also said something extremely prescient in that speech, Justin. He talked about the common enemies of man. Tyranny, poverty, disease, and war. And we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. So that third one was especially powerful for me today when I was looking back at this. She also mentions Bay of Pigs. By the way, that was April of 1961. So her fling with JFK happened right in between, just like she says. So she had a one-month window with him, which will come back at the very end. So that's hold on to that piece of information. At the very least, she's got her story down straight. Long Connors do, right? At the very least. The very least. She tells the story then of JFK's classmate from Choate which is a prestigious Connecticut boarding school. The guy's name was Lem Billings. They were roommates, JFK and Lem. He was called a second son by Joe Kennedy. In reading about this guy, I discovered that he was into art and actually wrote his thesis on Tintoretto, who was an Italian painter that preceded Caravaggio and influenced his work, Justin. What a fucking world we live in, man. Oh, man. Okay. I forgot about the Caravaggio stuff. I honestly, I think I've been repressing that for this, this whole time. This it's time. been a while for you. I was not going to let you go without hearing his name. Okay. I was going to work it in inorganically but the universe in the form of lem billings gave it to me organically so thank you universe and thank you sopranos he basically lebron james blocked it with all a shot in the 2016 finals i was just expecting a, a free and clear pass at the end of this podcast <laughs>
clean layup to just end it on a high note, and you had to just come and swat a Caravaggio reference at me. I knew it. No joke. I spent an unhealthy amount of time researching Lem Billings, and it paid off. Okay, it paid off. Um, anyway, Fran continues that he takes her and a friend to the Pierre Hotel, New York, where she sees Peter Lawford, Sinatra, Jackie Gleason. Nice honeymooners reference. They were all there. And JFK woos her. In the interest of national security, her sable was suspicious, kind of like your middle name is suspicious on an El Al flight. Tony's kind of irritated. He wants to make sure that it was just one time, kind of. Like, you were just with JFK one time, right? It's endearing that he's got his dad's back. Despite the fact that we're talking about his dad's girlfriend while still married. But hey, we know the rules, right? Wait, hold on. So you took it You took it as he was protecting his dad. Yeah. He was fishing to get more, to, to think, to put her even higher up. Like, oh, you were his girl, like... I thought he was looking to, I thought he was hoping that they had more encounters than that. Mm. Our individual psychologies come into play here. My brain was like, hey, wait a minute, but you're supposed to be with my dad. So what were you doing with him? And like, you know, it was only one time, right? So you, you hooked up with JFK, but then you went right back to my dad, right? That's what I was thinking. And I was also thinking in my head that he's using that to determine whether or not he's going to actually give this woman any money. Because would Johnny Boy want her to get paid out if he knew she was cheating on him? That's what I thought. Interesting. I just, I took it the other, I took it the other way. I thought he was like, oh, you, so you tell me more. He wants, he wants to know more. He wanted to, well, I mean, I think, I think. Well, I'm proven right in the end, if you think about it, because that's how he embellishes. He embellishes to give the version that he wanted to hear to his friends. Hmm. When you're married to a powerful man, you damn well better make him feel powerful. Then she disses his mother again. He lets it go, but he cuts the meeting short. He's got a meeting in the city again. Beginning to sound more and more like Livia, though. And it's showing a little on Tony, like you just said. Has he fully connected the dots yet or not? Remains to be seen. We'll find out at the end. He gives her money for rent and bills. Justin, at this point, what's his agenda with her? Is he trying to do right by his dad? And just, that's it? Chalk it up to that? I I think that's maybe a part of it. Uh, Again, I I think he's on a fact-finding mission. Um, His father... His father wasn't around too much, and he's a he's a big mystery to him. If you go back to to earlier on in the series, um, and Tony's with Melfi talking about his dad, and obviously the mother is always the subject. So you know, one of the few times he's talking about his dad as the Tony focus, he, one of the things is, "Oh, my dad, uh, he loves shellfish." Like that's one of the things that he says about his dad oh it's not that like he taught me this or he you know this is what i got from him or this is you know how i want to raise my kids because of the father he was instead one of the main highlights of his entire memory of his father was that he loves shellfish like that's not really that deep i don't think he had that much of a connection so you know what i I think in his head he he's romanticized his dad so better person from than the person he was romantic with. I'm with you. Cut to the card game. 
JT loses to Vito. Cowboys and three little Indians. Justin, what does that mean in poker? I know cowboys are kings, but what are three little Indians? Do you have any idea? I really don't know. Okay. Non-face cards, maybe? I don't know. If someone knows, let me know. Anyway, JT is distraught. We get the hint that things are not going to trend well for him. Mm-hmm. He has the same look, Justin, on his face as a defender. When Clay curls off a screen and releases a shot before you even have a chance to put a hand in front of it. Cut to Tony and Valentina. It's been a while. Yeah. He's not into it. Looks up, sees a William Wegman dog photo. And that powers him through, if you will. Justin, is he distracted by Tippy there? Is that what's going on? Or is he thinking about Fran? No, it's big time Tippy. He's he's got Tippy on the brain. That's for sure. I mean, he the, this this whole you know started out Beethoven. The kids, Jan's kids, wanted a dog. Um, talks about Tippy, goes to Fran, sees Tippy, and then he sees the dog. I think that's the real connection. Autopsy had a beautiful point hmm. that the fur on the dog was possibly a trigger to Fran's working in the fur department at Bamberger's. That knocked me on my ass when I read that. That's what made me think, oh my God, maybe he is thinking of her and he's finishing his mental sexual interlude with her on Valentina. That's crazy. That is crazy. Anyway, that was a great catch by him. William Wegman's sidebar real quick. He's a photographer who is best known for his work dressing dogs up, his own dogs. He has a permanent collection at Whitney in Manhattan. He's also written dozens and dozens of books, many of them for kids. When I told my wife about him, she showed me three. We have three of his books in our kids' bookshelf. Cut to Junior pacing in his robe, which is something that I think a lot of people are probably doing right now in their respective environments. Bobby's unpacking a box that says Manhattan Special on it. That's a coffee drink company. Still in business, still going strong, despite Starbucks' best efforts. Um, then Bobby says he's got to go. His dry cleaners guy's seven-year-old kid died in a pool accident. Justin, dry cleaners guy's seven-year-old kid. That's a tragedy, okay? The brilliance of the show is that from this tragedy, we get literally 0.03 milliseconds to commiserate before pure comedy ensues. Cut to Melvoin slamming a pizza. Junior wants in on that funeral. Tells Melvoin to make it happen. One of the best sound bites. One of the most appropriate sound bites for our current situation in the planet right now. Carado. Come out of my balls. I gotta get out of this house. I'm going fucking stock crazy. Justin, how relevant is that right now? I don't know how long it's going to be until we all are just glued to the obituary section, but um, it's... We, you know, I think we're all getting a little stir crazy. Unfortunately, the the internet and Zoom conferences weren't around back in uh, his day. He might have zoomed with uh, with Bobby. Um, How fun would those be? How f- fun would a Zoom room with Junior be? Do you remember back the episode where he's eating the olives and he's talking to Johnny Sack and they're trying to figure out and Carmine's there and imagine that being a Zoom call, baby. That's amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, man. Let's go back to another poker game. Daytime poker. I don't know about you, 
that's a bad sign as far yeah. as I see it. If you're playing into the next day, there's some new faces at the table, potential crew members going forward. Let's see. Not going to spoil anything. Vito wipes JT out. Caught it on the river, he says. I know river means the last card, but what does that expression mean? Do you know it? Can you explain it to me like I'm a seven-year-old? I can explain to you in NBA terms. Okay. Thank you. Even better. So so it's like getting bailed out with a foul call on a game winner and hitting the free throws. So if you if you catch the catch it on the river, that means you basically won the hand based off of the last card that was dealt on the flop. Um, that's Got it. So in NBA terms, you take a game winner and the ref bails you out with a foul call. Love it, love it. Now I will never forget it. That is exactly what I needed. Thank you for delivering. He owes the house. This motherfucker, Justin, owes the house. 57 boxes of ZD. Chris loans him 60K. Mathematics professor over here thinks that he just needs 3K for incidentals. Yeah. And he's going to give it, charge him a vig, two points compounded. Not simple interest. Motherfucker's going to compound it, okay? I, can you explain to me the incidentals? I, I, I really just didn't get what was going on with with how he went from 57 to 60. What are what does the incidentals mean in this context? So the house has to get paid their 57 right away. Got it. Okay. The 3K is going to float him to buy his big Texas chicken fajita skillet at Denny's and maybe a couple three other things. Got That's it. what incidentals are. Got it. So okay. 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 He's giving him a government bailout basically. Some walk around money. Okay? In the DVD commentary, I loved Buscemi's observation here about Chris, the character. Hmm. His point was that Chris isn't intellectually able to know he's taking advantage of JT. It's just instinctual for him because he's in that life. But this wasn't a long con for him by any stretch of the imagination. He's not that smart. I waited to say this to you because you made a point to think that Christopher's kind of like Tony. And no... I don't think Christopher's even half as smart as Tony. And that's the problem. I don't know. I don't know. I And and if we go back to the David Scatino thing, there were a couple of times where, where Tony's reminiscing with him. And then he says, like, don't reminisce on me. Like, there's a, there's a lot of parallels that I see. And with both of them, it's opportunity. They both set the opportunity and they, they pounce. I think Chris, to your point, is less intelligent um he doesn't he doesn't have it uh i don't know he doesn't have the compartmentalization that that tony does with business i guess um where you can just push that whatever that friendship aside i think chris is maybe a little bit more involved than tony was with scatino but at the same time like i think he sees the opportunity to make some money and this is his business and he he pounces on it just like tony did in the exact honestly in the exact same way with the high stakes poker game at the executive game Chris is playing chess, but he's not a grandmaster like Tony. Cut from JT taking a drag to Tony taking a drag while driving. That was an on-purpose cut. I love that. They even say it in the commentary. Rock the Caspa's on. We see Phil, and Tony's in a fuck-around mood, right? He stops to say hi. Phil Bales. He's kind of in that mode that he was when he saw Mikey Palmisi. It's the same kind of vibe, you know? Like, I'm going to fuck around with this guy. Uh, Phil Bales pretends he can't hear or see him. Justin, why is Phil ducking him? 
just pay up the money, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's going back to he doesn't respect Tony. Uh, that's the only thing I can really think of. Bad move. I don't know. What do you What do you think? What, what is, I'm, I've, I was kind of thinking of that too. It was just weird the way that he just was ignoring him completely. I'm going to take the respect thing and I'm going to raise you that he just thinks, fuck this guy. Fuck New Jersey. I'm not going to pay you. And he's going to play it out. He's going to try it. He's old school, right? Maybe he thinks he doesn't, t- he doesn't take uh, Tony's crown. He doesn't think it's a legitimate crown, right? So, but we'll see. This is a great scene, by the way. The chase. The music. That it's coinciding with the scene with Phil who is compared to the Shah of Iran, is too good. By the way, is that an accurate depiction? Oh my God, yeah. It's so accurate, right? It's a perfect piece of writing, again. Culturally appropriate piece of writing. The energy of this scene is visceral. Every time you watch it, it's like, ah, man, it's like an action movie, multidimensional. Phil's driving Justin while holding a fucking snow cone. He's like Harden, again... Late in a game, where he finally says, maybe it's time to play a little defense now, or we might crash this lead. So he tosses out the snow cone to play some defense <laughs> I, for more. I, I love the way that he, he does that, too. Yeah, he just does it. The motion is perfect. And by the way, I heard uh, Buscemi say they did it in one take. So this whole thing happened in one take. So he had one shot to throw that snow yeah. cone out, and he nailed it, right? He does that so he can have more control of his car. Fucking Ford versus Ferrari over here. It's a Ben Wallace box out. Phil crashes into the back of a boar's head provisions truck. Justin, to which I always wondered, I hope that meat was okay. If there was good pastrami on that, I'm going to be very sad. Tony roughs him up, says he's got 24 hours. Then we cut to Junior at the dry cleaner funeral. They're miserable, but he's noshing like it ain't no thing. Like you, when you land at LAX and you go straight to Langer's, baby. Bobby's uncomfortable. We should go, Junior. Relax. We just got here. Great palate cleanse scene. Cut to JT stressing out in front of a laptop. Writing, perhaps? No, wait. He's playing a game. Justin, what's your waste of time game or activity of the moment right now? It's got to be, I'd say, 2K. But one, one thing, speaking of Langers, um, so I, I have a smoker out back. Um, I like to smoke meats. I'm actually curing a pastrami right now. That no way. Looking forward to smoking over the weekend and making my own version of Langers number 19. So that's, that's the other thing that I've got going on here is, is uh, smoking meats. More product placement. Is it a big green egg? No, no, no. It's a master built. I got no skin in the, the big green egg smoker game. So. Okay, they're not paying your bills? Okay. All right. There's a Dr. Strangelove poster behind JT. That's a Stanley Kubrick film. It's considered by many to be the best comedy ever, which is fitting because many would argue that The Sopranos is one of the greatest comedies too. My point, it's no mistake they're intertwined here. Yep. We see JT's Emmy on the shelf. That's Mitchell Burgess's actual Emmy, by the way. Uh, we get an aggressive door bang. It's Christopher casting a shadow over the peephole. Love that line. Yeah. Justin, for a guy that's about to make 60 G's a month, his apartment looks like shit. I was going to say, I was going to ask, like, 
that's just him bullshitting, right? Like writers don't make 60K a month. I, I don't know. I honestly really have no idea. Hit what shows, writer... I think so, man. That's, a, that's like 750 a year on a hit show. I think that's right around there. But did you catch my reference is what I'm more concerned about. Like the Russians place. Come on. Thank you. Okay. All right. I just got to make sure. Okay. Uh, Christopher comes in. What are you, ducking me? I love that line. I've been using it to everyone I catch up with on the phone or Zoom now. It's like my default reaction to people. People that don't know The Sopranos are like, no, what's your problem, man? Like, why are you talking to me like that? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a Sopranos reference. Relax. I'm like, no. I'm going to Chris Paul steal that from you. Yes, please do. By the way, did you see Chris Paul on the Instagram talking about... Uh, uh, where he was with Steph Curry, and he admits to Steph Curry that you dropped me, man. You got me. That was yeah, awesome. Yeah, I did. I watched that. I did watch that. That was compelling that. content. They also, they, I don't know what it was on, but they also talked about that that time where Chris Paul uh, was like fake laughing with Steve Curry. Yes, like he was walking to the sideline, he was like fake laughing, and then they like asked him about that. He's like, it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. <laughs> Chris wants his money. Makes you feel like, kind of to your point that Alcoholics Anonymous was a predatory play for him, a place where he could prey on the weak and then hold them hostage until he busts them out, David Scatino style. See, I see this bust out thing as being like a like you and I go to the grocery store. Chris and Tony, they go grocery shopping for guys they can bust out. But let's see. That was the indication that I had, but I don't think that he's as smart as Tony. I don't think it's fleshed out. And hearing Buscemi say that he's not that intellectually capable made me kind of believe it even more. Um, But again, even Buscemi said, like, who really knows? That's kind of the beauty of the show, right? Use your own interpretation. Yeah. JT went to AC, we learned, and got deeper in the hole. This fucking guy, Justin. It's not a perfect comparison, but when I heard deeper in the hole, I thought of the Wire's opening song and the line, way down in the hole. JT says his meeting next week is with Renee Balse and that this will write everything. Then we get a great Chris soundbite. I got out of that business because people try to fuck you over. True statement, by the way. Cut to Tony and Fran at dinner. She got new kicks, Justin. She calls them <clears throat> kicks, too. Props. She's up there on that goat app. If Fran Felstein was around right now, she'd be thumbing through that goat app, Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, she pays the uh, second market prices for those Jordans, I'll tell you that. Bottega's marked down to six hundo. <laughs> Beatrice Mogley over here. She bought shoes instead of pay bills. Tony isn't happy. He tries to get sympathy from her over his uncle Zio, who is taking the death of his wife very hard. But Fran is kind of looped out. And her knight... In shining armor, which I always saw as an unmalaprop throwback, yeah, the waiter with liquid courage comes over to get her out of this moment. Again, Justin, like Livia, she's showing herself to be all about her, chiseling at Tony's myth of her and what Melfi suggests she is, which makes it all the more interesting to me why he continues to prop up the myth. Well, the interesting thing is, I, I mean, what I think she thinks that she's still got it. Like she's still, you know, a hot number and can, can manipulate Tony into buying her stuff forever. That's, that's what I, I see it from her. Like, oh, she doesn't care about Zia. She doesn't need to listen to him. She just needs to be pretty and he'll buy her all of this stuff just like his dad did one day. 
And the shoes are helping with that and are going to get her back to her uh, former glory. Cut to Chris back the next day to collect, this time with muscle in the form of little Polly. Is this fucking Pulp Fiction? Am I supposed to be afraid? I don't know. I didn't see it. Justin, who's Travolta yeah. and who's Samuel L. here? Easy. Easy. Uh, Travolta, Vince is Polly. And Chris is definitely Jules, Samuel L. Jackson, 100%. He's doing all the talking. He's doing all the talking. Uh, and he's the, the one making kind of the scene progress and move forward. Chris and Polly beat him up. They slam the strange love over his head that you alluded to earlier. What's the message I wondered? For me, the first thing that comes to mind immediately is two great comedies colliding. I go back to the A-bomb thing. I think that's a no-look pass setup from David Chase, for sure. Cut to Uncle Zio. Guy died of a broken heart, man. Junior is more emotional than ever before. Not since back in the Fran Felstein days. He's the opposite, Justin, of suffering and silence here. Cut to JT trying to pawn his Emmy. 15 bucks. A Oscar? Maybe. But TV, again, writers ripping writers. And remember, Terry Winter got nominated for an Oscar, too. So he's got even more flexing to yeah. write this line. It's so, fucking perfect. Well, so before the fifth season started, um, The Sopranos had won 13 Emmys already. So I think this is, uh, this is basically the writers and David Chase saying we don't care about the critical acclaim we just want to put out a good product like emmys don't mean as much as people are making them out to be that's that's how i kind of took it a little bit you know they're poo-pooing themselves a little bit but it's because they know that that's not what it's all about they're walking around like phil jackson over here they're not chasing rings they're chasing themselves exactly love it so he pawns his laptop the message that i got from that is the computer is worth more than the Emmy it helped earn. Which is fucking perfect. That's great. Cut to little Polly handing Chris his 1200 bucks. It's all Chris cares about. It's the motherfucking cocksucking money, right? <laughs> Next to Chris, we see an expect miracles sign. JT is using again. Chris shakes his head. The hypocrisy of this fucking guy, Justin. Echoes of his intervention tirade. He sure does judge a lot of people, even though he flounders himself just as much as the yeah. next guy, right? Yeah. Cut to Tony and Fran. She's making tea, filet. Uh, sign you up for that dinner, too, the way you describe all the beef at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Tony has an envelope for her for 150000 bucks. He gave it all to her, Justin. Are you surprised by that? I was pretty surprised. That's that's a lot of cash. Um, but he didn't take I was a taste. Honestly, well, the thing is, I'm a little more surprised about how nonchalant she was when she accepted it. And I don't know. You could look at that in a few ways. Um, Class. I'm choosing. I'm choosing to look at it in a way that it's still part of the long con. Like I'm going to be cool about this because you know, this is not a big deal so that you can keep giving me more of this stuff. Okay. I don't know. I dig it. No, I dig that. Absolutely. She's like 150. I'm just going to keep playing the nice host and continue to accrue. Exactly. Exactly. She starts in on a remember when thing. 
and we know how Tony gets, agitated and uncomfortable. She kept smoking after Johnny got emphysema, we learn, and that irritates Tony. Even Livia quit, he says. He defends his mother. This is weird. He's teetering back and forth with Fran and Livia in this episode, and our heads are bobbing like bobblehead dolls at this point with what the hell's going on. Appetizer. Man, these sound good. Water chestnuts wrapped in bacon dipped in duck sauce. Son of a bitch. It gets me every time. Almost makes you forget all the things that are kind of bothering you about Fran at this point. Well, they definitely wouldn't serve that on LL. Definitely not kosher. (laughs) Definitely. Tony shows her the JFK hat he had. Swapping JFK swag. How did we find ourselves here? From Kim and a flopping fish an episode ago. She dons it. By the way, that hat Irina wears in the pilot. So there's a little bit of full circle happening with that. Yes. And then she sings the happy birthday song that makes you never want to hear the happy birthday song ever again. Probably the most awkward thing. Quick, give me more bacon-wrapped water chestnuts, even if I'm on an El Al flight. Something, anything. Tony's face, Justin, is the universe's face when she sings that. Yes, but you know what? I I don't even think that he's even there anymore. I think he's still pissed about the whole smoking thing. So he's not even present to the singing thing. Because he he makes more of a pissed off face than the face that I had and you had at home where you're like, oh. It's not a cringe. It's not a cringe? It's, uh, it's, I, I didn't take it as a cringe. I take it off, uh, took it as a, what the fuck? She like was smoking around my dad when he had emphysema and, you know, had like oxygen in the house. That's, that's what I, because I think he was really excited to bring the hat over originally. Yes. You know, he, he brought it over. He probably had a whole plan and him knowing her, he probably thought that that was a part, that was a possibility. You know, that was a potential way that this could have went. But throughout all this, all the Fran encounters, he never seems happy to be there. He always seems kind of put out. Some of that is the dog. Some of that may be him reminiscing about the past and having to think about his mom and his dad. But it hasn't been a pleasant experience for him, which kind of always had me wondering why he keeps going back. He keeps... Well, I, th- I think it's the fact-finding mission. It's he's he's trying to learn more about his dad, but I, I I think that there are parts. I think every single time he's with her, there's a switch. There's something that she says, and then he's like, "Oh, what am I doing?" Mm. Uh, he he goes in there. Him. It's a reminder. So every time he goes in, he's thinking, "I'm going to learn something about my dad." Uh, she's going to give me some cool anecdotes from back in the day, JFK stuff. Uh, I can go talk about it with my friends, brag about it. And then your mom is statuesque or yeah. your mom, you should have seen her on this date or something like that. And it's, you know, you smoked with my dad, you smoked while my dad was sick. It's always something that reminds him, oh, wow, what am I doing? What am I doing? It brings him back to reality. From Tony's face, we cut to JT's busted face, which is about right after that. Uh, the Dick Wolf guy hired some kid from Yale as That tends to happen from time to time whenever you're up against the guy from Yale. Back to Tony and Melfi. He's bothered that Johnny lived with Fran. The fucking slippers. Flashback to teenage Tony, which we talked about off mic before we started. This was a great P 
piece of the show for me, a meaty part of the show, uh, trying to track down his dad because his mother started bleeding from a pregnancy. What a change-up pitch here, Justin. Never saw this coming. Johnny says he's tied up, but will come right away. He didn't come till the next morning. The lamb chops would have been overcooked. She was cooking for, for Tony like that in the scene before with the filet mignon. So I, I saw a little bit of a parallel there. She was trying to, so that's why I think also maybe she's trying to sub, seduce him and br- you know bring him close and get something out of him the way that she did Johnny Soprano because you know cooking is the way to the heart. You know what else I saw there? I saw a hint of, I saw a hint of Gloria there. The dinner's ruined. Yes, yes. Oh, I think there's, you know, all of his gumars, and not all of them because Irina was a little bit different, um, but the ones that he he goes for, they're all Livia-esque. classy. No, they're not Livia-esque. I mean, there are Livia-esque. Livia but components. They're, all, they're Livia components, but they're also Fran components. Like these, you know, he, he even says it to her, and he says it in a really funny way because he's, searching for the word classy so he says you know you're really uh and he could have just said classy but he says you got a lot of class and like he really values that i think he's always trying to break out of his shell or not his shell but he's trying to break out of his comfort Mm -hmm. zone like when he goes golfing with you know kuzumano and his buddies he's he's trying and when uh you know he's with gloria and valentina these are people who portray this upper echelon classy images and Fran is the exact same way. So I think, I think that's what he gets from his dad too. Like the Gumar is someone that's supposed to be classy. I think Olivia is on like, obviously the the Gloria Livia correlation is there. It's present. Um, But I think he's always trying to find somebody that's, that's really classy that can kind of take him to another level that Carmela couldn't, you know? Mm. So Johnny Boy in this flashback tells Livia that he was at a Yankee game the night before. And he calls her Lee, which is a great nuance. This little subtlety of their inner relationship we get a glimpse of. Tony lies for his dad. Johnny's look was all it took for him to lie. She could have died, Tony said. Yeah, I feel like this is the only time, the first time the audience feels sorry for her. Yes, the only time absolutely. She's, she's the the real, true victim. Yes, Melfi's emotional about it, and we're, we're sharing her emotion. Absolutely. Yeah. And then Tony, of course, takes our emotion right away from us and says, fuck her. Justin, forget Logo Lillard. This was top of the key, Tony. He's deflecting all the blame. Goes back to what I was saying earlier. He's, he's propping up his dad, and the way that he does that is by putting down his mom. Interesting subtlety here I saw. it. You look at Melfi's brooch, and you see a peacock. When I saw that in this context, and you think of a peacock, you would think of something protective or guiding. And that was a nice subtlety if that was the choice to convey that, because she kind of is kind of guiding him through this, this flashback, if you will. I forgot. I forgot about this. I forgot about your... Your reaches with Melfi's wardrobe. Absolutely. It's all coming coming back back to you now. It's all all in there. And then she says something (laughs) called auto da fe. The term is Portuguese. Has to do with public penance. And burning alive was one example of it. Interestingly, 
Tennessee Williams wrote a play called Auto de Fe in 1938. And the West Wing references this term also in its fifth season. You need to forgive her and move on, Melfi says. And we get several beats. We get a chance to wonder what's he thinking there. Yeah. He's thinking about the dog, right? You know, it's, I don't know, but the, the thing that's interesting is that's a really monumental part in that relationship that they have because this is what she's been driving towards this whole time. Obviously, the first, the first part is, you know, the awareness and the understanding of what's going on, what's causing your anxiety. It's your relationship with your mother. It's the connection to me, all of that stuff. Sure, it's good to, to just know and understand where these things are rooted. But you're not really going to get over them until you get over them. And this is the final step. She's been setting up him to forgive her. That's the only way that he's, he's going to get over. And this is where he finally says it. Because this whole time, she's building this up like, your mom did this to you. Your mom did this, mm. this to you. Stop, you know, forget, stop apologizing for her. Like, she, she needs to take ownership. And, and then, like, he's finally, like, even when she is the, his mom is the victim, he finally goes, fuck her. Well, now is the time where you finally accept that she was the problem. <laughs> Now you got to forgive and that's how you're going to move on. So this is a, to me, this was like a really big part that I think was kind of glossed over a little bit. And obviously they, they belabor the point a little bit as the series goes on, but this is to me like a really big point in their relationship. No. And I think it's great that you highlight it because she's a professional and she's out of character here in that she's telling him what to do. Usually therapists don't do that. They, guide you and let you figure it out on your own but here she's kind of probing him because she's reached a point where she thinks she might not be able to if she can't make the point here then she's not going to make the be able to make the point anywhere um nice catch cut to ihop fucking product placement 2.0 over here justin <laughs> chris is driving jt's bmw z3 book value seventeen thousand. i looked it up went for much higher than that at that point in time uh growing up justin how did you feel about those z3s zooming around your neighborhood I think initially, like early on, I thought they were they were cool. I think they came onto the scene and it was like, oh, this is a cool new look, cool car at the BMW. But I think eventually they symbolize exactly what JT Dolan symbolizes and it's <laughs> kind of douchiness. <laughs> well, it's Chris's now. Uh, it says he'll knock it off the principal. Again, it was likely worth much more, so he pocketed. But hey, this is the game we play, right? JT goes back to rehab. There's no chemical solution to a spiritual problem. Great soundbite. But you sure about that, though? Cut to Junior with a doctor. Same doc from episodes ago at the golf club. He's with Tony and Janice. This is a sad scene, Justin. We learn that these quick strokes might be coming back into the mix. Calls them TIA. Blood to part of his brain is blocked from time to time. Junior appears to have regressed. For the first time, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he laments the fact that he has no children. Earlier this episode, he says he never married. He wouldn't want to bring a woman into this life of his. Guy's sad, man. He's having a reckoning right in front of us. Importantly, though, yeah. tell me what you think about this. I think it's a glimpse to Tony. 
of how this whole thing could play out for him too. You give your whole life to something that really truly doesn't give back. It takes, it takes, it asks, it demands, but in the end, it's all a big nothing. Yeah, uh, I don't know how much this necessarily relates to Tony. Um, I think you do have a. I think you do have a point. I haven't really thought about it that way. I looked at this a little bit more. Like Junior has just been sitting at home. This is his time where he's got nothing else to do but think, and he's thinking about his whole life and what he's done. He's reflecting on it and just the mistakes that he's gone through. And now he's just in a state of constant regret. You know, all of the justifications that he gave before of why he didn't get married or why he didn't have kids or he didn't want to bring them into this life, yada, yada, yada. He's looking back and saying, well, now what do I have? And he's just living in this constant state of regret. Not to mention he's just going to funerals and that's his only social outing. Um, but to your point, I do, I do see that that this could be Tony if he pushes his kids away, pushes Carmelo away, and just has these Gumars as his his main girls going forward. He could end up just like Junior. I, I do think that there are like startling differences between Tony and Junior just in general, mm. where Tony Tony's a little bit more, I think, aggressive. Um, he is a little ambitious. bit more like it, ambitious, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's an interesting thing to ponder because he is separated from his family, from his wife right now. And um, he's been creating all these myths this whole episode, which is leading to this point where Junior is essentially taking all the mythology of this thing and dumping it on his doctor's table. (laughs) And that's what's interesting about it for me. So we cut from this all big nothing thing and from Junior's point of view Mm. to Tony hanging on to these myths for as long as he can. We cut to the dancers at the Bing. What's more mythological than a bunch of strippers surrounding you, right? Yeah. Tony's hyping up Fran to the guys, and this kind of brings our whole conversation full circle, Justin. Yeah. Why the sudden change? Is it a hype? Is it to hype up his dad's legend? Is it to push any power that his mom might have on him away? He says that she was JFK's girl. We're talking about Fran. Yeah. He says that she was JFK's girl for three years. But that shit was barely one month we've deduced, right? And JFK didn't even live that long after 1961, right? I mean, if you're doing the math on his assassination. But again, these myths, Justin, he embellishes more. What's your take on why? Final thought on on this propping up, if you will. Put your capstone on it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. He's propping up his his dad and honestly himself in a way. and the, the funny thing is that he really gets the confirmation that he's looking for when Tony D says, oh, oh, I've, I've heard about her. Him saying that. And it's interesting because Soprano's autopsy had a different take where he took that as Tony Blendetto basically calling him, calling Tony out on his bullshit. But I look at that. That's, that's the confirmation that Tony needed to keep going. And like, oh, okay. So I have like now a little bit of confirmation that this person like was – you know, this big thing, this big myth, mythological figure, and it's just solidified. So then he just goes into it. Yeah. And you know what, for a minute there, he thought the Jackie Kennedy thought the marriage was over. And 
that's how it's just like capped off. That's how it ends. And, you know, he's just really trying to put Fran up, makes him look good, makes his dad look good. And it pushes his mom down another person that you can just blame it all on. So that's, I think really what it's about for him. The way I saw this final scene to come full circle on Camelot, Tony's in his Camelot. The Bing is his Camelot. He's staring at the Bing dancers, the puffs, the close-up on his face. He drowns his drink, and then it cuts on a harsh sound, right? His myth ends where the show ends. Fade to black. It's a bleak ending. It's on lies. It's on confusion. It's on myth. Can't overstate that word enough, and I thank Autopsy for putting it in my vocabulary. Largely, Justin, because he can't, and this is my thesis on it, largely because he can't allow himself to believe that his mother's stranglehold over him is unrelenting, even from the afterlife. Mm. And so these are all ways to push that down to use your term to push her down he has to come up with all this artifice but us you me and all the viewers that are looking at him in that moment when the camera's just on his face blowing smoke we're in on it we know it's bullshit and i think tony b knows a little bit too it's a beautiful ending it's a dark bleak ending but it's a very beautiful one and i for as much criticism as this episode gets i love this episode for so many reasons I do too. I do too. I think and I hope and I pray that we did it justice. Thank you for doing it with me. Thank you. We'll do it again. Next time I'll do it with an appropriate drink instead of the one that I I have now. Yes. Stay safe. Be well. You too.